Salam and welcome to another TMV podcast brought to you by the Muslim Vibe. As always, I'm your host Salim Qasim. Um, we're back again after just a few short days. Um, as promised, we're trying to produce as much content as possible, um, and I'm having a lot of fun actually. Just messaging and getting in touch with random people and then having a conversation um we're hopefully going to be talking about fashion very soon um hassam's going to be joining me on that one because i know very little about fashion um but uh, a sister called hafsa has written a book um about the rise in modest fashion um and we're going to have a, a sort of conversation looking at that whole thing um yeah <laughs> look out for that one so on this podcast today, I'm joined by Mubin Hussain, who's the founder of British Muslim Youth, um, an organization based up in Rotherham. Uh, we have quite an interesting conversation um, that kind of goes in a lot of different directions. Um, and we talk about, uh, well, we talk about Rotherham um, and the kind of historic issues um, that have happened there. And the response from the Muslim community in Rotherham as well. And I think it's it's really interesting for me to get an insight into the community there because all I've seen really has been the mainstream media narrative that's been um, all about, you know, grooming gangs and, and Pakistani men and whatever else. Um, so being able to speak to someone who's been on the ground, who's been active in the response from the community and, and been very much involved and integral in all of that is, is, is fascinating. Um, Alongside that, we talk about, I, I think, generally uh, philosophies when it comes to engaging in politics and response to, to terror and things like that. And, and Mubin, for me, has, has a genuinely very fascinating um, perspective on things. I don't want to um, uh, give away too much, but it, it's, it, it was... It, it, I've never heard things presented in the way that he presented them um, and having this like duality to things that was, I think, quite mature and, and important in terms of how we should look at things um, and how we should act. As I'm trying to be as vague as possible so that you actually listen to the podcast. Um, but yeah, I think let's 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 end the introduction there. Just before I go, um, we do have our Facebook, um, the, the TMV podcast Facebook group. Uh, please join that we're going to be posting stuff on there and updates and questions and you know if you want to feedback and whatever else um also uh really importantly we have launched a patreon um page for the muslim vibe so we were actually going to be launching a uh, crowdfunding campaign just before ramadan our target was going to be quite ambitiously a hundred thousand pounds um, but given everything that's happened with coronavirus, I don't think it's reasonable to expect people to to be really generous right now and donating large amounts. So actually, we're we're looking for your support um, in a much smaller way. So we're looking for people to be able to contribute just a few pounds a month um, to help us kind of sustain what we're doing, but also importantly grow. We really want to grow our team, um, and 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 we need your support to be able to achieve that. I'm going to put the link in the description, and I'm going to keep shouting this out. And I think um, on 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 one of the levels or some of the levels, like we will actually be shouting out people on the podcast that are generous enough in 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 becoming patrons. I think they're called patrons or patreons. Pa patrons probably patrons of ours but anyways um yeah please do um support us and and help us to keep doing what we're doing essentially um so anyways without further ado here's my conversation with mubin salam mubin well thank you for having me on and appreciate thank you this. 
thank you very much for, for joining me. I apologize as well for the slightly delayed start. Um, <laughs> as I mentioned to you just before, my, 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 I share a workspace now with my mum in, in, in quarantine times. And uh, my mum very conveniently unplugged my iMac. Um, so I, I, everything was open and, and then it all got closed. Um, so we had a slight delay in starting this conversation. But thank you very much for, for joining me. I guess, I mean, first things first, how, how are you? How are your family? I hope everyone is keeping well. Um, is everything okay on your end? Alhamdulillah, I think, look, this is like when, when people say these are unprecedented times, I mean, these are genuinely unprecedented times that we've never, ever seen. You know, we're, we're in peacetime. The whole world is locked in. We don't know how this is going to end. We don't know uh, where we're going to go. We don't even know how dangerous this COVID is right now. Obviously, yeah. we're hearing, you know, news, but we don't actually know how deadly it is, how deadly it will be, not just to life, but also financial situations, people's well-being, and everything else. So you know what? It, Alhamdulillah, my family is all fine. My friends are fine for now, inshallah. May Allah bless them uh, and, and, and keep them safe. I hope the same is for yours and for the wider Muslim community and the wider community uh, across the globe as well. A hundred percent. It is definitely. I, I think on the last podcast, actually, we had a little joke about the fact that I kept using the word unprecedented um, because it's it, there's no other way to kind of describe what's going on right now. Um, but, but I mean, interestingly, we had kind of set up this, um, this call or we were in talks about doing this well before, um, the drama of 2020 kind of hit all of us, um, and, and, and I guess changed everything. Um, and I think there's a lot for us to kind of discuss and, and a lot that I actually want to learn from you in terms of the stuff that you've been doing. So you're the founder of an organization called British Muslim Youth, um, yeah. based up in Rotherham, I believe. That's correct. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about what the organization is, how it started and what kind of work that you guys do? So basically when I, when I grew up, look, we, we as uh, I'm 26 years old growing up, um, I think me and I think most British Muslims were in a paradigm which was also unprecedented. We're using that word quite a bit, you know, 9-11. <laughs> it's the word of the year, I think. It's, it's going to be the word that we you know, have to always use. But we've been using it for a very long time because 9-11-7-7 changed the whole scope, the whole paradigm, the whole vision and prism of how British Muslims were seen. You know, we talk about generations. We used to hear from our elders about, you know, um, the, 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 you know, the racists and the, you know, uh, big boot wearing uh, onto the streets. But, you know, things actually did kind of, you know, die down. You know, being Pakistani and being Asian and being Muslim became quite exotic for a while. And then, 9-11 and 7-7 happened and our lives were transformed and, and growing up in that period I, I felt like there was an identity crisis a crisis and an identity crisis especially for young British Muslims you know mm. uh, you went to school you were labeled a terrorist you didn't know whether you was a Pakistani you didn't know whether you was British you didn't know how your faith fell into this was Islam at, at that time you questioned look Islam is a peaceful religion but where were the answers to why Islam was a peaceful religion Remember that we were, everybody was on the back foot. Uh, so, is it? Can, can I can I jump in very quickly? I just wanted to ask. Um, how, so, I was eleven, I think, when nine eleven happened, uh, two thousand and one. Yeah. So you must have been about what eight, seven? Was it two thousand and one? Was it two thousand and one? Yeah. So I, I would have been literally yeah seven, seven years old. What can I ask? What that was like? I've never actually had this conversation with him. I'm surprised of that age. But like, what was that like? How, how did you uh, perceive what had happened? And I think it's it's quite interesting. Personally, I was I was very young at the time. I remember being. I think well, obviously it was primary school. I remember yeah. coming home and seeing it. 
But I think there's somebody, you know, Mudassar um, Ahmed wrote a piece on this, and it was quite interesting. This how Muslims actually reacted, or people reacted at that time, because there was there was some anti-Western feeling uh, because of the uh, you know the atmosphere that was taking place. And mm. I'll, I'll be honest, at that age, I didn't understand it. I was seven years old. I didn't understand what was the issue. But what I didn't understand more than anything else was the kind of labeling and the kind of effects that were going to affect Muslims after that. You know, being associated with extremism and terrorism, this whole paradigm of where you fit in the world. Because growing up, yeah. we always knew that, you know what, you were a bit different. And you know what, maybe you weren't actually British. You know, you had that kind of identity issues as a school kid growing up because you weren't white. So you had that and you knew mm. about racism. But having this added layer, which at that time was was quite confusing, it wasn't helpful. So I, I, I took a journey. I, I, I went onto a path where I was part of an, I was part of this walk called Walk Talk. There's a lady called Jill Hicks who was a seven seven survivor, and she did decided to do a walk from Leeds to London. And on this walk, uh, she she wanted to go down communities, and and she sadly lost her legs in the seven seven bombings. But she wanted to build communities together, this real, um, you know, harmonious uh, type of activism, bringing communities together. And I got involved in that campaign and I spoke during that campaign. I got involved with the Home Office. I did some other kind of campaigns. But I felt as though, look, I was a young person growing up as an individual. And I felt that what I felt was something that other young Muslims across this country were feeling. So and and especially in my town. So I firstly set up something called the Rotherham Muslim Youth, see how we can in our town get young people together and see how we can also express our faith in an open way, but also express what our faith actually means. Um, A a message of love and peace and tolerance. These kinds of images are that that kind of period of time. And then it kind of uh, went on to become something called the British Muslim Youth. But I, and I say this and I say it was what inspired me was when I looked at movements. I looked at movements like the African National Congress uh, and looked at and learned about Nas- Nelson Mandela. And I read that the African Na- National Congress had a youth wing to it. And they actually set up originally as the whole Congress set up, I think, 1917 or in, in, in the early uh, 1900s. But they weren't victorious and successful in their campaign till almost the 20th, almost the, the, the 21st century, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. Um, so 1994, when Mandela became president. Um, and it, and it, it taught me something that, look, whether we, through British Muslim Youth, was going to change something or weren't going to change something or we're going to become an organization, I knew that I had to play a role with young people to plant a seed, a seed that could then grow. And I don't know where it could you know, end up with, but I knew I had a role to play. And that's why kind of British Muslim Youth set, uh, set up to give British Muslims and especially young people a voice, but also an understanding of their identity of who they were and to be proud of who they were. I think what's what's quite interesting um, just hearing you speak right now is that everything that I've kind of done and tried to do over the last few years when I've been involved with stuff is is very much here and now. Um, and, and I think there's that youthful exuberance that we all have. And it's all about instant results. And I think that's a sign of the times as well. Mm. Um, you know, the, the social media age and whatever else. And you, on the other hand, are coming from this quite like wise sage-like perspective of actually you know what like the struggle can last a hundred years I just need to play my part and I'm I'm slowly coming around to to understanding that I've been you know working with the Muslim mm. vibe alone for six years now um and, and and initially it was all like you know I want to do things now and now I'm realizing actually there's a there's a part that we all have to play um but you're I, I mean you're, you're you're incredibly young and and uh, where did that 
I mean, when did you develop that kind of mentality and, and mindset and, and where did that come from? What inspired you towards that? And uh, to be quite frank, I, I you know, I, I'm quite open with this. My role model is a Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And, and I say that openly as somebody who's quite, um, look, I'm, 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 I'm quite secular, I'm quite liberal, but, I, but I'm Muslim. That's, who I, that's my identity. That's who I genuinely am. And yeah. I think it was down to people, and I, and I say this uh, quite openly, is sometimes people do not look back at history. And if they do look back at history, they always replicate it. They don't take examples and understanding from it. And my kind of understanding was if I, you know, my role model in life, and, 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 and uh, you know, the role model for the Ummah of Rasulullah is the Prophet Muhammad There's nobody more, you know, more perfect, more honorable, more beautiful, more uh, magnificent than, 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 than his uh, creation than, than him than his being then what did his life teach us if the best of all humanity and the best of the ummah you know took so many years in his struggle to convince mm. to fight a struggle with the best of all companions who the hell do we think we are and it really was it's the arrogance of this it's, it's the arrogance of this dunya that we yeah. think that we're going to transform society and it has to be done well if Rasulullah spent his whole Meccan period yeah and what did he do in half the period, there was no prayer, there was no zakat, there was no hajj, obviously. Fasting was in a break. He was teaching them human values. But he didn't transform that generation of Makkans, yeah, in that short period of time. So if I want to say that this was the best of the prophets, you know, and the best human being ever, and this is the struggle he had, and if you look at his whole lifespan, how things fell in place, but it was a whole struggle, then yeah. who was I? And then you go on and you look at all the struggles, whether you look at, you know, the Islamic history, whether you look at the Tsarist uh, revolutions in, Syria, in Russia, whether you look at the French Revolution, the Renaissance and history generally, it teaches you one lesson. You do what you can and, and, and the rest, it kind of plays in the part. But it's, it's, it's all about the long game. And it wasn't me about being a sage. I think I've always been this kind of granddad figure, even in my youthful state. Um, but it, it's about having this, it's about having this yakin belief that you only play your role the rest yeah. is not, you know, the success is not for us. It's, it's what Allah grants us. I, I think I think the struggle for a lot of people is is figuring out what their role is. Um, and that's often like that That can sometimes be a person's life work. But just um, one one point that you mentioned, I think is so apt, is that, you know, the, the prophet declared his prophethood at the age of 40. Yeah. Um, and, and, and it makes you think like 40 years of of having this kind of uh, understanding of the world and of, of society and of people and of morality, um, but only at the age of 40 did he declare his prophethood. Um, that whole 40 years of foundation building, you're not even, I mean, you're barely halfway there um, in, in your own life, right? Like we've, we, in literally. terms of age, in terms yeah. of age, literally, right? So it's like, you can almost say that the work that you're doing now can only potentially just be the foundations of what's to come. Um, and, and I guess that you know the problem in 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 youth, and and I'm I'm glad to be calling myself a youth for once. Um, but the problem in youth is that we we always want we always want quick results. We want quick answers. You know what I mean? Like it's it's just the way that we've been brought up in society that we live in is so immediate that it's very difficult to 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 play that kind of longer game. Um, if we can kind of move the conversation on a little bit towards Rotherham. Um, yeah. So I I think 
Um, and and again, I am I'm born in London. I've lived here pretty much my whole, well, I've lived here my whole life. Um, and so I have a very London centric. And we had this conversation um, when we spoke yesterday briefly about how like in London there's almost like a bubble and there's a nice little network. And even on mm. like the the Muslim organization type scene, everyone knows each other. But you know your organization up north, I to be honest hadn't heard of um, before uh, Roxana had introduced us and set all of this up. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think frankly speaking, I think a lot of people when they think about Rotherham um, and, and yeah. the Muslim community, the first thing that comes to mind is the, 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 the child sex abuse scandals, the rape gangs, the grooming gangs, you know, old Pakistani men, like all of that stuff. And I, and I feel like it's, it's very multi-layered, um, but also it's very difficult from, from our perspective maybe to unpack it, not being on the yeah. ground there, not necessarily knowing people there. And I know you're probably the the best person to speak to in terms of like you've been so active in the community in Rotherham and, mm. and know the landscape so well. So c- can you tell me more, I guess, about um, about Rotherham and, and the Muslim community there and also, you know, specifically looking at uh, the grooming gangs and, and, and everything else that we hear so much about in the media? I think, look, what you said kind of sums it up. The narrative is so uh, significant. It, it's magnified to such an extent that you know, somebody who works in the Muslim realm, somebody who kind of knows the narratives and the kind of cliches placed on Muslims, and generally Muslims who kind of understand how the media tends to play the image of Muslims, also kind of have these images because that's how powerful this kind of rhetoric genuinely is. And I found that as well, I think, because I was born in Rotherham, I think, look, when when the incidents occurred, first of all, I was too young. A lot of these crimes are historical crimes. So we wouldn't have kind of known when they happened or took place because they were way before my generation. And but one of the things is when I when I always go out of Rotherham, people genuinely, and I'm talking about Muslims, they they almost play that all Muslims in fact, or all Pakistanis and Muslims in Rotherham are kind of groomers, just as if you would say all Muslims are terrorists. But we've learned that not all Muslims are terrorists. We're still learning that not all Pakistani men are groomers, and it, it, it's the same kind of shift. And that's that's just the ground reality. And yeah. I've come to that, and I, and I think when, and but when, but look, my point is when we, we started working on this pre two thousand uh, and eleven, and we were very clear when when the Jade report came out that found the harrowing uh, statistics that fourteen hundred girls in Rotherham were groomed. That look quite clearly, we were disgusted. I didn't care where what backgrounds these individuals were, whether they were Pakistani or the Muslim. My reality was quite simple: if you've groomed, or if you've failed, and you've abused young girls. To, firstly, it's not quite a Muslim thing to do to rape, groom, give people alcohol and you know that kind of stuff. It's not actually something that's it's quite clearly forbidden in Islam. B yeah. is nothing to link to do with that. And C, you know, and B, if, if it's happened, we must come out and openly stand against it. And we we got the whole community together. We we weren't like any other community. We didn't bury our heads in the sand. We came out. We, we you know we were on the media. We went out. We held demonstrations against them. We united the town. And, and in terms of the CSE so, so, scandal, so, sorry, we did everything just, just to to clarify, you're saying that that yourself and organisations that you were involved with were as Muslim organisations were coming out in protest against um, grooming gangs and everything else on the streets of Rotherham. A hundred percent. We we led the first ever demonstration of this kind, and our whole argument is: yeah, people like Tommy Robinson come to Rotherham, um, and the far right come to Rotherham because they're Pakistani grooming gangs, and because they're doing it in defence. We are standing against people who may be from our own communities because that is the justice that Rasulullah teaches us that, you know, yeah. whoever they are, you know, 
what the it's the act that you condemn. And so we we yeah we we were open on that, and we were quite categorical, and we were quite revolutionary on that. In fact, when we did it, there were people from our own community saying, "What are you doing? Like, why are you taking this step?" And and you know we even got condemned by some people for doing it. Mm. I I think the difficulty, and, and this is like coming to talking about uh, condemning terrorism generally and, and attacks and, and, and bad things and whatever else. Uh, again, the conversation we had just, just yesterday when we were, were kind of uh, discussing this podcast, one thing that I find difficult um, is when Muslim organizations will condemn things that Muslims have done or people who call, call themselves Muslims. And the example that I gave you and the example I give now is that uh, the London Bridge terror attack that took place, or the Westminster attack, I can't remember which one it was, um, instantly the likes of the MCB were, were Harun um, Khan did like a video statement saying, oh, we condemn this attack, whatever, when the facts weren't even there. And I think what it turned out in that, I think it was the Westminster attack, the case was that the guy was mentally ill, there was not even anything linked with uh, Islam or Islamism or anything of that sort. Um, I don't know. I mean, people can, can look into the case itself, but there's always this like knee jerk reaction on our side to be defensive and to kind of own up and apologize and distance ourselves. When I think actually like, you know, if someone came up to you and said, oh, so, so tell me about this terrorist attack. I know as much as any Joe blogs on the street about it. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but but organizationally, there is this kind of defensive mentality. And I think what what's interesting is that that you you talked about how not only do you kind of condemn on on this side and 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 speak out on this side but then it's also equally weighted on the other side um and and there was a an interesting case that you also mentioned about the the Rotherham 12 um and again i think like this is i was i was shocked actually when when you told me about this um that i hadn't heard about it at yeah. all so, did so, yeah yeah just just coming to some things you said look in terms of the mcb i'm not going to be uh, you know, I'm not bashing the MC. Yeah. I'm not bashing the MC. No, but, but, but I think one thing, one thing <laughs> the MCB sometimes gets, and, and, and I'll be quite open with it, is they, they tend to get their historic reputation that takes over. Yeah. I think recently, recently they have done a lot of positive work as well. But moving past that, I think, look, you mentioned the Rotherham 12. Well, because I think one of the things is like, like I said, we've, Northern is like a historical journey. So we've condemned the groomers, we've called for the arrests, the police have not been held to account, the social services haven't been held to account for actually failing these girls. And then what you got was 14 far-right demonstrations in, in less than a year or about a year and a half where week in, week out, far-right demonstrators were coming to Rotherham, pushing out, spewing far-right hatred in, in our town. And they were openly being allowed to do it. And now my, my question to you is, and a question to anybody else is, imagine if this was Al-Mahajirun. Imagine if these were those groups that you would class as Islamists or whatever you want to call it, whichever kind of term you want to use. If, if, if these are that kind of groups coming out and, and, and professing extremist extremist narratives, would we allow them to come into any town and city for 14 times? No, we wouldn't. But we did in Rotherham. And mosques were attacked. Muslim women were attacked. Taxi drivers were attacked. One was put in intensive care. And then it led all the way down to, uh, you know, 81-year-old Mohsin Ahmed. He was a Yemeni man simply walking to read Fajr in the morning. And on, on his way to a mosque, he was, he, he was literally beaten to death by two people who lived on his street for you know, all, all his life, these same people had lived, you know, lived in the same same vicinity. They never decided to attack him, but on this occasion, they called him a groomer and they murdered him. And and you have to ask yourself, what was happening in Rotherham? What was happening was a far right narrative that was justifying the murder 
of, of Muslims, the attacks on Muslims. And what, and all this was happening because of this kind of rhetoric on Rotherham. Now, Mohsin Ahmed was murdered and it was a terrorist attack. And I think we tend to not remember it as a terrorist attack because it was before Joe Cox sadly passed away. And it took, sadly, a white MP to die for other people to realize that far-right extremism is real. Yes. And yeah, I also yeah. say this narrative that, you know, this is what white privilege is. You know, I, Joe Cox's death, sadly, and it was a sad and tragic death, you know, no justification and nobody, you know, like, I, like we kind of wish it ne never even led to that. But it was this death that led many people to, to you know, remember far-right extremism. It was, you know, a white woman on Channel 4 wearing, dressed up like a Muslim woman for them to realize, oh, Muslim women re receive Islamophobia. But the, the point I'm coming to this is long and short was, you know, a man was murdered and he wasn't recognized. And therefore, we decided as a community that on this occasion, we were going to come out. And we came out to demonstrate uh, in, in, in Rotherham. And the police weirdly said they're going to have zero tolerance towards us. Even though on 14 occasions we worked with them, we locked ourselves out from the town center whilst we were on the receiving end. And when we yeah. went to the town center, we were broader, uh, we were locked in by the police. We were treated like we were the far-right extremists. And we were led down this alleyway where it led to these far-right individuals actually attacking our community. And 12 brave men actually defended the, you know, the, the, our, our demonstration. And these men actually ended up getting arrested. And we told the police, look, we've had a man that's murdered. Our community has faced all this kind of barrage of attacks. And now you're arresting 12 people. Like enough is enough. And that's when the British Muslim youth, alongside a coalition of organizations in Rotherham, launched mm -hmm. a, a boycott on South Yorkshire police. A boycott on South Yorkshire police on an organization level to say, well, if you're not listening to us, then there's no point having that conversation. And that kind of went out so, in the just media. To, sorry, sorry, sorry. Just to take a step back. Um, so, so you mentioned that there was, I, I mean, a couple of things. So firstly, with regards to the notion of talking about the far right and it not being taken seriously, um, you look at a case like um, Muhammad Salim, who's who who, yeah. who was uh, I, I think like an eighty-two-year-old man who was murdered Birmingham. by a far-right terrorist in Birmingham. Her daughter, uh, sorry, his daughter Maz Salim now is like a campaigner and 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 talks yeah. about this up and down the country. And it's it's crazy that you think that these incidents have taken place yet you you hear barely a peep from from anyone about this. And as you say, mm. so rightfully, I think. You know, it, it's it's absolutely tragic what happened to to Joe Cox, but it 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 did shine a very serious light on the rise of the far right. And even, I mean, I I don't want to get into talking about prevent too much, just because we'll get too sidetracked. But even when you look at prevent policy, um, it it does often very much feel like, and I, I know teachers and and uh, healthcare professionals as well personally, and the training they receive, it's all about looking for signs of radicalization amongst Muslims. It's like if someone starts yeah. praying, if someone wears a Palestine badge, someone wears a headscarf, all of those kind of things are, are potential signs. Whereas we're not looking at things and not taking the far right threat as seriously. Um, but coming back to this story um, of, and, and, of what happened. Sorry, go on. So, so yeah, so we had this boycott and one of our calls was that, look, 12 of our men have been wrongfully arrested. Yeah. And, and, and their houses were raided. Their houses were raided in the morning. Is that correct? The houses were raided. At, yeah, the houses were raided in early in the morning. Like these were some kind of you know huge you know you know criminals that they were going to do something. And and in fact, the police had failed these individuals by not protecting them because uh, yeah. they were literally you know going out there. They protect the community. And so you know we said, look, enough is enough as well. And even though these charges weren't going to be dropped, we're going to fight a campaign for this. So we came out and we led a campaign 
campaign for these 12 men, which was called the Rotherham 12 Defence Campaign. And we went throughout the towns and cities. And I remember, actually, I, I came to London to speak to Suresh Grover, uh, who's from the Monitoring Group, who led the campaign for Stephen Lawrence. And I, and I spoke to Imran, Imran Khan, who became one of the uh, prominent lawyers on this uh, case. Uh, he, he was uh, the family lawyer for the Lawrence's case. When I spoke to them in, in the conversation, they also had the kind of conversation what you're saying. You're saying, well, Rotherham's about grooming. And, and, and I had to break down. And, we, and I remember we had this long conversation and, and then they got it because they understood that this was institutional racism that had, was kind of being peddled on Muslims in Rotherham because of this media rhetoric. And then we got Michael Mansfield QC and we ran a whole campaign up and down this country to show that these 12 men were wrongfully arrested. We had campaign groups like Hillsborough, we had all grief campaign. These were actual campaigns against police brutality who stood yeah. by side by side with us. And we went to the courts and in fact, 12 out of 12 of our guys were found not guilty. Like this was a huge success. 12 men that were wrongfully arrested were all unanimously found not guilty uh, and, and, and came out of uh, court as innocent men as they were. And this was a huge victory, but it was a campaign and a struggle that we had to fight, but a struggle they had to fight. And you know, I, I also like to thank them in case they do listen to this because they kind of worked with us. They said, look, whatever you guys are doing, they kind of, you know, wanted, allowed us to do this campaign. So they kind of put their own lives there for a campaign for the whole community and the whole Muslim community. Uh, and, and, and I think that was quite brave of them as well. And you briefly mentioned as well uh, a boycott, which I thought was, was very interesting. How, how, how does one boycott the police? Well, we weren't boycotting them in terms of the 999 calling. The point was, look, you sit around, we have, we, as, as communities, the police works on consent. And we have groups who sit and talk with the police, who work with the police uh, and work with all services. But if you're sitting around that table, and I think this is an important point, and this is the mm. kind of testing point I have with people. I always say to people, engagement is always the best option. You have to engage, you have to engage, you have to engage. But there's a slight difference. And I always say to people, if that engagement doesn't work, you've always got to be able to say, I'm going to step off that table. Don't let that officer, that individual or their status ever undermine your you know, work or your representation you're bringing from the community. So when that engagement was flawed, we said, look, we're not having any engagement with the police. We as a community are boycotting them because they never listened to us anyway. And I think that kind of, kind of was a wake up call to the police that, look, we've got to take this issue seriously. And I think the problem we have sometimes in our communities is there's too many people who just want to sit on that table and eat those biscuits, uh, have them tea and biscuits, just to be on that table. They are in awe of being on that table. And, and, and this is what I, you know, I hate. I want engagement. I want people to engage. I want people to network. I want people to you know, play a role within institutions, within our government, within our structures. But they've got to be able to do it on a platform of integrity and, and truthfulness. I think that's a that that's another interesting talking point. The the, the conversation about engagement versus um, not engaging, essentially, and yeah. and what's what's interesting. My my personal approach, I think, is that, or my personal philosophy on it, is that I think there needs to be a, a dual approach. So on the one hand, you're going to have individuals who are going to be kind of anti and stay away from um, engaging and, and and being involved on an organisational level, and will shout from the outside. But then at the same time, and I think, you know, this last weekend is a great example with regards to the concerns over coronavirus and yeah. um, the burial process for, for Muslims. 
and 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 Naz Shah MP was at the forefront mm. of making sure that those concerns were were being heard and that the the policy that was being implemented and rushed through because obviously we're at a time of a crisis but she was able to make sure that that the, the safeguards were put in place that we could have our sort of rights respected with regards to um the burial process for for people that are deceased in this time and for me it's it's times like this that that people will, will will pat someone like Naz on the back but then not truly appreciate the fact that we have to be and we have to work within the system on some level or we need individuals to do that but my my kind of thing is that personally i i couldn't be the one to be an mp i, I couldn't be that person there but i think we all need to kind of work together does that make sense no i agree but i think look sometimes i, I say this about myself as well look when people especially if you're a muslim and you're talking about yeah. a struggle there's a struggle being part of an institution when you're fighting for the little important issues you can fight for and gain, but a lot of the times you're not being listened to and being undermined. You know, that that's also a struggle. It's sometimes easy to be on the outside and ask for everything but gain nothing. Do you get what I mean? It's mm. easy to be, you know, the, 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 the hardest struggle is sometimes fighting within yourself, holding back and also getting them small gains. I think, look, this amendment look was, was a good example of this. We had four or five days uh, as a community to see any change. Uh, and, in, and and we weren't, be able to, we weren't able to do just grassroots campaigning. Alongside, though we had some grassroots campaigning, that added pressure that gave Naz Shah the support she needed for the, the government to, to, to kind of step back on those kind of amendments and make those changes. But we needed people in institutions to also have that fight. And but my my whole argument is that we have to have these principles that you know what you're gonna whatever role you take you've got to be able to step back and you've all you've all, you've got to be able to say can I no longer do this role and can I be honest with it and if you're gonna be able to do that then yeah in, in, engage and, and and do that because the gains that Naz Shah made on this occasion for the Muslim community none of us could have done it on the outside. 100%. And and, that, and and therefore we needed engagement, and therefore it's 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 a complete but, but, but this is but but this is where I think the two go hand in hand because yeah. you see like you talk about small gains, and I think and and not being listened to and whatever else, and I feel like often that that probably is the case. And you know I've heard former MPs, I've heard lords and and ladies talk about this and and, and talk about you know feeling shunned and 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 not feeling appreciated and taken seriously and whatever else. And, and and it's it, there's a lot of patience that's required in that space, but I feel like what can be done from outside often is you can shout a lot louder, you can you know you can really hammer a point home, and ultimately I feel like being able to push from like a more extreme um, position will bring people towards a more center ground. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Whereas if you're you know, pulling from the middle, if you're pulling from the middle, you're only going to come a little bit. Yeah, and we had this conversation yesterday. Look, in terms of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, you needed this kind of collaboration to get their success on civil rights like they did. And you, you see this, in fact, even, you know, if you look at Mandela's movement, the ANC, the ANC actually was successful because if you look at the, the, the nationalist movement, such as Steve Biko and these kind of campaigns in Africa, and you see this always across the board that you find, uh, even, in fact, even Malcolm X always says that the, um, the militants find him too moderate and the moderates find him too militant. This idea that he, even he wasn't in the extreme elements and that, that's the whole conversation for itself yeah. but the point i'm trying to make is look all that is fine and you need those angles but as an individual ask yourself am i wanting to shout on top of a balcony and shout the loudest because i genuinely can't hold my own ego in or and i'm forgetting the hard struggle going back to the life of rasulullah for 40 years he built he 40 years he worked for 40 years he was 
you know, Sadiq and Amin, he, he, the community saw him. He did not shout. He did not do Elon. The point I'm trying to make is sometimes for our communities, it's always easy to be a, a rebel and a revolutionary. It's difficult to somehow sometimes be able to say, hold on a minute, let me quietly do the work. So when I am a revolutionary, it sounds up. So I'm saying, but can we have that balance? The thing is, I, I, I think, and, and this is may, maybe where me and you might kind of disagree, yeah. but it's having that rebellious slash revolutionary spirit and, and working within what some people would consider to be an oppressive system that's problematic. Do you know what I mean? Because the two kind of don't go hand in hand. It's like revolution is all about upheaval and like taking over and changing the system yeah. and and working within like what we currently have, which in the UK, which is a Tory government or in America, which is a, you know, Donald Trump um, era. Like it's it's difficult for people. I think yeah. it's difficult to say that actually, you know what, I, I have all my values. I have my core Muslim principles, despite the fact that they might not sit and they might not be aligned with the current governing or ruling party. But I'm yeah. okay with that because I can make little gains. Like personally, I would struggle with that. I would no, struggle no, I, to work within a system like that. By by this, what I mean, and, and I always say this is sometimes, uh, you know, certain organizations are quite revolutionary, but they don't do the soft kind of work either. Meaning, for yeah. example, we set up a group called Mohafiz. Mohafiz is set up in Rotherham because far right groups decided to come to our mosque. So we we felt as though we needed a community watch group like the Jewish community called Shomrin to protect our mosque to make sure that you know what. People weren't able to come into our mosque. People weren't able to attack us because Rotherham has been mentioned in Christchurch, has been mentioned around the world. And you know what? What if there's an attack? We need to prevent ourselves. So we made sure that we took a radical step to protect our mosque by making sure we've got our volunteers out there. But right now, when we're in a crisis, these same volunteers are part of our COVID-19 response unit. And they're giving food, medicine and, 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 and kind of, um, you know, uh, food, medicine and services to the, the, the elderly and the vulnerable. The point I'm trying to make is you've got to be able to do the sunnah of Rasulullah to be the most kind and be the most just. But the problem we have is certain organizations are always most, the ones that are more just, but they always somehow laugh at those people who are doing the soft kind of work. You know, yeah. that's my point. Have the, you know, Rasulullah did what was most just. Even people like the Ummah, they had the justice, but they were also kind and loving and open with that in terms of charitable contributions to non-Muslims as well. Mm. And that's my balance I'm trying to say is why do we have to have people who are so the problem I have is some people who do the soft kind of work, the cohesion kind of work, the integration kind of work, never become radical rebels when they need to be. And the ones who are radical rebels don't go mingle with non-Muslims and do that kind of unity work and cohesion I, work because I, I, the for them it's too is, soft. I've, I've, never, I've, I've never heard someone presenting both the arguments in, in one sentence the way you just have. I think that's, that's very like genuinely very unique and, and, and very interesting. And, and, and it's going to be interesting, I think, to see how inshallah as your career develops and and you get more and more involved in different things how you kind of continue to reconcile those two elements because i think it's not a small thing what yeah. you just mentioned with regards to rotherman and uh mohafiz is it mohafiz the name of the mohafiz, organization yeah. so, represents so, guardian yeah so so with with mohafiz as you said you're basically setting up sort of security units to protect our mosques and i think also you almost glossed over the fact a little bit but you know when you said that rotherham was mentioned in the christchurch attack the attacker had written on his gun or on bullets had written you know rotherham um yeah. and 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 i think you also mentioned the uh the finsbury park attack when we spoke yesterday yeah but just think about this so think about this something that happened thousands of miles away Right, yeah. that ended up killing and, and martyring over fifty Muslims in you know in a, in, a, in New Zealand. 
somewhere where I'll be honest with you, I've never dreamt of going because it's too far, right? <laughs> I, it's it's really that far. I feel like you, you, you got to be a bit younger and cooler than me to want to go to New Zealand, yeah? <laughs> I, but this, this is what I'm trying to say. But there was an individual who went and used Rotherham, was radicalized by this rhetoric in Rotherham to murder people. And, and in Finsbury Park, when Mohammed, uh, when Makram Ali was murdered, Darren Osborne, the murderer for that, also mentioned in the confession letter, Rotherham. So my point is, if Rotherham was mentioned in New Zealand and in London, and we've already had somebody murdered in Rotherham from it, then very likely there could be another terrorist attack in Rotherham. And, and so yes, we have to 100%. be very careful. But you, see, but you see, this is the thing, right? Often, and like this is my gripe with a lot of kind of uh, Muslim individuals, organizations, whatever. Often the approach is like, oh, no, but, you know, we are all brothers and we will welcome anyone into the mosque. When it's like, that's a very na naive approach. Like, as you've just yeah. mentioned, the, you know, Rotherham has been cited in terrorist attacks literally in different parts of the world. What's yeah. to say one won't happen in Rotherham and that your mosques in Rotherham are pretty much most at risk? Yeah. Um, and, and so you've taken a very pragmatic approach, which some would consider to be aggressive and whatever. But actually, it's, it's the right thing to do because you need security. You need to look after the families, the kids, you know, the, the elderly that are attending these mosques. And also bear in mind that there is a track record of someone having been killed, people having yeah. been attacked and hospitalized in Rotherham. Um, but as I said, like if we if we zoom out of the conversation a little bit, when you talk about Rotherham, all people see is grooming mm -hmm. gangs. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the, that's the that's the unfortunate, I guess, and sad um, kind of reality of... But, but something of... I want to come in here, if you, if, you, if you allow me, I think, look, when we set this group up, even within our own communities, there were certain individuals who were saying, no, you can't do this. You're going to be known as vigilantes, even knowing this whole context. Yeah. They say you're going to be known as vigilantes, as, you know, as, 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 as rebel groups and everything else. But now these same volunteers are actually delivering to you know, vulnerable, young people, vulnerable people in our communities. And what are they going to call them? And this is my point I'm trying to make is as Muslims, mm. if our role model is Rasulullah then when we take our justice from him and his companions, let's also take our kindness. And those who take his kindness and take his you know, message of love and unity, take justice as well. Take and, the stand other up. Side as well. and that's my point. And I feel like it's, it's easy to be on either side because yeah. it's easy to have a one point agenda. Being a single issue people is always easy. You know, being a single issue kind of campaign group is what Brexit and UKIP were. It's easy to do that. What's yeah. difficult is to have all those conversations at once. And and I, I think like the, the time that we're in right now is so telling. So you look at the far right groups that are talking about Britain and protecting our streets, looking after our people, our culture, blah, blah, blah. The question is, where are they right now? Like, you know, coronavirus has taken over. I'm seeing Muslim groups at the forefront of of trying to provide service to the community and the likes of uh, Tommy Robinson and, and all, all of these individuals are nowhere to be seen. Um, and, and it just, it just goes so just like, as you said, like being a one policy group or entity or individual is very easy. But when, when things change, when circumstances change, you need to have a sort of uh, a guiding principle that will, will steer you in, in a certain direction. Yeah. And I think, um, yeah, I, I, that's uh, I, I'm. I, it's really, really positive to hear. To be honest, um, I, I love I love the way that you think and the way that you guys are Thanks. doing stuff in Rotherham, and I, I wish you guys all the best. In terms of if we can talk about um, Muslim youth today, um, you're incredibly young um, for 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 the amount that you've kind of achieved and done, and mm -hmm. and, and and there's a lot that you haven't even spoken about or we haven't spoken about that you're also involved with, which is incredible. Um, but how how can young people today? Do you think get involved? What what are the like? What was what started you on the journey? I know you kind of mentioned it early on. Um, but what are the tools today that people can use, and 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 how can they essentially make a difference? 
I, this is probably the, the best opportunity we've got right now is, is COVID-19. And I, and I wrote an article on this. And I think um, one of the things that young, young people will want to do it's, it's, is understand that, you know what, there's time we need to change ourselves. We need to change ourselves and look inwards. I feel as a community, we, we kind of got lost. Look, a lot of young British Muslims who are within our communities have come from our third generation migrants and everything else. The elderly, yeah. the, the elder generations came to this country, had very little. And right now we've got, we had everything in our hands. We had, you know, the holidays, the luxuries, uh, the wealth, the cars. And I feel like we became ungrateful to who we were. And I always say to people is, I think if we're going to be able to change ourselves as a community and, and as an ummah, we have to learn one simple message. What is our purpose in being here in this world? What is our purpose? And 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 what? it's not about, for example, going back to where we start, actually, what role do you play? Before you ask what role you play, your question is, what is the purpose of me being here? And what am I doing in my day-to-day life that serves my purpose of existence? Because when I go, what will I have? And that cannot just be, you know, putting money into a charity box. That has to be a purpose of living. And then once you've gone through that mindset of why I'm here, look back at the seed, right? look at how you can change yourself, and then we can move forward. As a community and as young people, we always want to change the world. Let's not focus on the world. Let's focus on ourselves. And it's always easier to just change the world in rhetoric. It's harder to change ourselves. And I think this is a perfect opportunity. Obviously, you can get involved with British Muslim Youth. You can contact us on our social media pages and we'll get back and, and support you on that journey and get involved in our kind of campaigns. But one of the messages I want to give to young British Muslims listen to this is ask yourself, how, what are you doing in your life that is, a, is actually purposeful for your is existence as a Muslim? What is your purpose and what is your existence? And are you mm-hmm. filling that purpose before you move on? And, and then look at what you can do and the little bit you can help and the difference you can make. But I think that's um, that's very good advice, and and I think even like with with myself and reflecting on my own personal journey up until now, it's finding it's finding out how we can add value, as you say, beyond just kind of surviving. That's that's really important. I think that's what gives life meaning in in one sense, if that makes sense. Yeah. Just being able to just being able to to sit down at the end of the day and say, actually, you know, what? I added value in other people's lives, or I added value in society, or here, there, whatever, with xyz that i've just done um and and finding something you can consistently give back to and i always feel that it's not necessarily about how big the 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 reach is of what you're doing but it's actually about the impact so it could be on a very local level it could be serving in your local mosque it could be you know cleaning um the toilets in your local mosque it could be whatever it might be you know helping your neighbor or whatever but just adding value somewhere um is, is is so key and i think for young people especially uh, I'm gonna ask a question. We've actually had because one of our um, listeners got in touch and said that we should end the podcast always when we're when we're speaking to people by asking a couple of questions, like quick questions. Um, one of them was, I believe, if you could have a meal with anyone or three people, who would it be, dead or alive? I'm gonna add the Prophet Muhammad on your list. Probably, I, I assume he's he's up there. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't think I. You know, I'm. The honor of Rasulullah is, 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 is way past my sinful state. And that's not even saying out of humbleness. I think Rasulullah is Rasulullah, you know. Even if we could be, you know, blessed with his companions, you know, that's even pushing it. I think that that's kind yeah. of... Um, okay. Um, I, three people. Um, 
um, what, going back in time, um, would you know, first and foremost, I'd probably say uh, Imam Ghazali. If I could be in, in touch with somebody, uh, you know, or, or, or sit with somebody, I'd say Imam Ghazali. Just how you know the, the philosophical work he did and the realm, the realm he, you know, the way he transformed the whole um, philosophical, you know, uh, side of things uh, in, in his time, but also the inner and the outer kind of work he did on, on, on spiritualness. Um, Malcolm X. I, I think I'd, I'd love to meet Malcolm X at the end of his life and just see how every moment of his life kind of transformed the, the life he lived. Uh, and I, I kind of put Malcolm X, and I always say because there's a book called Blood Brothers, so maybe Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali uh, forward. And I think last but not least, uh, Sheikh Tahir al-Qadri, I think, uh, who is a prominent Sheikh in, in, in today's work. But in one way, he fascinates me because what you see is in Pakistan, he, he's run, he, he led a political movement which was quite radical. But in, 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 he's also done a work on countering terrorism. Two very different types of work. Uh, and I think it's quite unique. So, you know, if I could have the opportunity, I think I would blessed to have a conversation. And these are just because I'm trying to just quick fire. Put me a, a, I know, I know. I'm putting you on the spot. It's a pretty heavy uh, dinner time conversation, though. I can imagine with the, with, with yeah. the three of them. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 finally, do you have any? I'm not going to ask for three, but any books that you would recommend or that have kind of inspired you that you would recommend to people uh, to read, especially young people. I think. With a with, with a view on this kind of conversation that we've just been having, yeah, I, I think um, first and foremost, any Sira book. Look, we have to remember our identity and be proud of our identity. I think first of all, pick a Sira book. I think Martin Ling's uh, biography, autobiography, biography of and that's a pretty good one. Um, in terms of look, and then look, Blood Brothers kind of works if you want to learn about Malcolm X and there's, you know, Mandela's got his kind of biography and there's kind of loads of biographies. Biographies, I, look, I personally prefer biographies, so I'd kind of go for those kind of things. Kind of learn about people's lives and see how they did it and, and just take examples from them. That's cool. Well, well thank you very much. Um, how, how did you find that process of answering random questions at the end? It's we weird. Stick with that? I, I, I think it it's cool. I think it's cool. I think it's cool. Cool? Yeah, yeah. I think, okay, I think it works. I think it works. Maybe we'll keep it in. I'll, I'll maybe expand the list. Um, but thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Again, I, I apologize for the late start. But this is, I hope it's it's the first conversation of many that we have because I I I, I mentioned to you yesterday post um, lockdown. I, I would love to kind of sit down with you and talk further about various things that we've discussed. I I think it's it's always interesting for me at least, and and why I love this podcast. And I've said it quite a few times already. The opportunity to kind of pick people's brains and understand different perspectives um, is 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 a blessing, I think, because often we exist in our own kind of echo chambers and the people around us think very similar to us and we're never really challenged and made to think in a different way. But I get the opportunity to speak to so many people. And as I said, hearing about Rotherham and your experiences up there. And, and as I said, like the the thing that really struck me was the duality of things. And, and you mentioned you know, condemning terrorism essentially on both sides or condemning oppression and, mm. and wrongdoing on both sides. So you came out as strongly in the streets um, against uh, the, the grooming gangs and whatever else. But then at the same time, when the police were mistreating the Muslim community, you boycotted the police and, you know, you took action and you set up a whole defense um, campaign for, for 12 individuals who, who at their own, you know, in their circumstance were just kind of defending the community as well. So I, I genuinely really admire that. And I, again, thank you for, for, for giving us a thank bit you of for, an insight yeah. into Rotherham. But thank you guys for having us on, on, on here. And actually, 
allowing me to share these stories. I think it's important that people get to hear these stories. And I think one of the things that we need to improve ourselves on is how we share our messaging and communication. I think Muslim Vibe um, is a good platform for that. So thank you for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much. And uh, stay safe over the coming weeks and months, inshallah. Social distancing. So guys, um, that was my conversation with Mubin Hussain. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning uh, and, and near the end when I was chatting to him, I, I, I have a lot of respect for, for him and um, the perspective that he kind of brings to things. The work that he's doing is really important and you very rarely see people who are kind of willing to do the the fun engagement type stuff where you know you're sitting around the room and and as he put it kind of enjoying the biscuits but then also um you know setting up security groups in in rotherham to protect uh, the mosques and the individuals in there i think it's really important um and, and it's interesting as well like he mentioned that you know you there are concerns that people will uh look at you and be like oh this is aggressive this is you know whatever um it's not befitting but at the same time you've literally got the jewish community doing exactly the same thing and no one no one says anything about them they have their rights and you know they 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 should be looking after their their synagogues and protecting the um the communities so i think there's a lot to a lot to kind of think about um i'm i'm definitely going to be following up with 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 mubin um and and meeting him up for a coffee i think you guys don't need to know this but I I I wanna I, I wanna have this discussion a, a little bit more because for me it's, it's it's always interesting when I come across someone that that presents something in a way that I haven't heard before or I think is is unique and and there's there's an there's a level of kind of conviction in, in what he's saying and and there there is um, he he kind of uh, rejected my calling him a sage but there is a bit of like wisdom. In, in the approach that he's taken and I think I always like to kind of follow those those threads of intrigue in my own head and and follow up with people and try and have those conversations because th- there's always room to learn and to develop and grow so um, yeah I, I think you know if, if if there are young people listening to this there's there's a lot to take away just in terms of figuring out and framing um, what our purpose is and how we can get involved and whatever else um, and Yes, uh, that is everything for another podcast on the Muslim Vibe. Um, I am going to... Yeah, so I, I mentioned at the beginning and I'm going to mention it again now. Um, Patreon, please do support. Um, we're, we're, we're asking, I think... I mean, we have close to a million followers across our social media platforms. We have a quarter of a million website visitors a month. Uh, if if everyone gave even just a fraction uh, per month don't give a fraction give a bit more please but you know if everyone gave a very tiny amount every month that 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 consumes our content um we would be able to do so much more and grow our team and 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 it would just be amazing being able to to scale up the project like just to give you guys an insight and and we've spoken about the team before but right now we have three full-time members of staff um and so you got nuri who does the well our video production shout out to nuri Nora, it's very confusing in the office. Nora, um, who's just joined us from America, she's our social media manager. Um, and Jessica, who you will have heard on the podcast and you will have seen some of the videos as well, who is our written content editor. 
um, but we, we, we really want to be able to upscale and grow the team and, and just develop um, the brand and, and the, we have a million and one ideas um, but we need your help and support to, to, to realize that so I apologize for, for rambling you're going to hear me talking about this a lot more please don't skip over it um, I'm going to try and say different things every time but essentially the ask is always the same uh, please do uh, consider a very small monthly donation or support for our platform and um, we will all inshallah benefit I mean you know we, we want to be able to create the best quality content for our audience and, and we'll keep doing that anyways I'm definitely rambling now um, thank you guys very much for listening please share subscribe and blah 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 uh, <laughs> all right um, I will be back very soon with another podcast I'm sure uh, take care guys and stay safe Thank you.